0: Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Eero, and I am your host for episode 30 on May 30th, 2020. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guest on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612 367 6052 Before I get to the podcast, I wanted to address some of the comments that have been left on the Air Medical Today Facebook page. It seems that some people because they don't like an article or do not like its source make nasty comments about me, really only the messenger since I do not write the articles that are posted. I started Air Medical Today back in 2009 to provide to our community a source for news and information about air medical transport. With the COVID-19 pandemic, I have also included this information since it both directly and indirectly affects us all. Rather than try to engage with the authors of these comments, and I did try, I am deleting them and in some cases banning the person from the page. I have no agenda in the articles I post, and they are what they are, whether you agree with them or not. I don't always agree myself, but we must all see the articles to know what is being written about our great air medical and EMS community. I would appreciate your understanding for the actions I have taken now and in the future. Finally, to continue all the work I am doing in bringing news and information and the podcast, I would welcome your financial support. So, if you or your company would like to be a sponsor, please contact me at webmaster at airmedtoday.com. We are very fortunate today to have as our guest Mr. Jonathan Bunt, who is an organizational consultant and trainer with his own company called Massa Consulting since 1993. I had the pleasure of working with Jonathan while I was the President and CEO of Lifelink 3. Jonathan provided support to our team in numerous ways, including directly to staff after difficult transports and to the entire team after significant events. Jonathan has degrees in Child Psychology and Jewish Studies, Counseling and Psychotherapy, and coursework in Human Resource Development and Counseling Psychology. He worked in Israel from 1987 through 1993, and we will be talking about his time and experience there during the podcast. After Israel, and before and during his time with Massah, Jonathan has been an employee assistance program counselor, stress team member with the American Red Cross, psychological consultant with the Hennepin County Sheriff's Department an adjunct faculty member in human and organizational development and police psychology at the Alfred Adler Graduate School, a behavioral scientist consultant with the Minneapolis Police Department SWAT team, and a private practice psychotherapist. Well, Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Edward. It's really uh, exciting to be able to have an opportunity for you and I to, to chat about so many important things.
0: Yes, it's, uh, you know, we've, I know, chatted in the, the past when we worked together at uh, LifeLink, but uh, uh, I always like going into uh, a deeper dive and I always learn new things. And in fact, I have some questions uh, for you on your background. But before we get started, in general, I, I guess I'd really be remiss in not asking you about, you know, what's been going on here in Minneapolis since Monday, May 25th, with the death of uh, George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police. Um, since you have worked with police departments, uh, what is your take on the stress that everyone is feeling regarding this situation? You know, from that would be with the police. The the protesters, you know, even the rioters, and and really the general public. And and this is all on top of COVID-19, the pandemic.
1: You know, Edward, even as you're sort of introducing that question, um, uh, you know, I get sort of shivers about probably the most profound, sad, uh, just, deeply tragic event that I've seen in my professional career uh, in working in law enforcement, supporting law enforcement that I have ever seen, you know, as law enforcement sworn to protect and to serve our communities. And with the visual, I mean, I think about my first looking at this 10 minute visual and and, and saying all types of things like yelling at the video and saying, all right, talk to the guy, get off the guy. Yes. Sit him up. Yes. And and I mean, with that intense energy and just saying, you know, what what is this person thinking? What are the other officers thinking? Now, hindsight, I've come to to learn because I didn't know these specific people. I know that department. And I spent 12 years as a mental health professional to the Minneapolis Police Department SWAT D- team as the sort of the support guy in decision-making and all types of things as it relates to SWAT events is that we work to try to explain to make sense what was happening what were the threats and risks to those officers at that time and the problem is we can't check any boxes Mm -hmm. you can't say that you know you look at other Uh, officer-involved shootings and those types of things, split-second decision-making, what are the risks to life, to self and others, and none of that's going on. And, you know, there is a great deal of support within the law enforcement community saying, what happened is wrong. Anybody who is a cop who looks at that and says, wait a second, maybe this, maybe that, or, or trying to justify it, should not be wearing a badge.
2: Yeah, it's so,
0: it, it, you just don't know. I mean, there's, you know, the tapes that we've seen, or you've a little bit when he was first arrested and then, you know, some of the stuff after, the, the police tapes still haven't been um, released, at least uh, uh, as yet. So you don't know what went on in the intervening moments, but still, no matter what, to be, you know, have a knee on his neck and he's trying to breathe, and he can't He can't breathe.
1: So you asked about the, the stress that cops feel. Listen, yes. there is immense stress day-to-day day of doing the job. And, and so when we look at the stress and the ability, and I think we'll get into this even more with other things, is the complication of an event like this is, is so profound in the essence of the sadness for Mr. Floyd's family. Um, clearly, we know that there was a certain dynamic within a 19 year veteran cop and rookie cops, and a little uh, where, you know, well, they know better, where yes. there isn't this moral voice. From these, from the other cops, to say, wait a second. He says he can't breathe, right? You yeah. know, yeah. So, and these days, nobody trains in that manner. As far as the way this guy was was uh, had a knee in a, at his neck. They talk, you know, knee in the shoulder until, but he was already in cuffs. Yeah, set him up. Yeah. So, um. I have, it's very difficult for me to say these things because I, I tend to be careful about not being that, you know, backseat sort of, here's what should have been, and, and not to judge people. I wasn't there, I wasn't involved. This one really gets at you. And it should.
0: Yeah, I think everyone, including, uh, you know, the mayor of Minneapolis, usually you don't see a mayor coming out and saying, you know, that, um, Uh, Derek Chauvin should the police officer should be charged. Now uh, it was just announced today I'm sure you saw that he has been charged with third degree murder but um, just the the overall stress that this creates and it's uh, what I was you know you're saddened by this event but then you have peaceful protesters which by and large that's what a lot was going on but then the media focuses on the the rioting and the looting, uh, which, you know, there's no excuse for that. Um, That doesn't prove anything. And a lot of those businesses over there were, uh, you know, minority owned or, you know, family businesses (coughs) that have been burned down. They don't exist uh, anymore or or looted. So it's it's sad. I mean, I, I just think it adds to, you already have the COVID stress and now, with this on top of it, it's um, it's pretty bad, you know. Here in in the uh, cities, things were in Saint Paul too, and of course, we've seen now protests around the country. So,
1: well, it it's moved quite significantly into Saint Paul. I mean, where you know. I think I saw a number one hundred and forty businesses yes. were significantly impacted by vandalism or fire and looting. It, it's just it's profound and to a certain degree the suburbs and there's still a worry i just got a notice that the city of minneapolis starting at 8 p.m tonight will go on curfew
0: oh i hadn't so, heard
1: that <clears throat> yeah it just came through
0: yeah i did hear that uh some of the suburban uh locations have been uh, on alert too so well it uh we'll see uh, this will be a continuing story
1: you're
0: well so um, how I was going to start things off was uh, that, you know, in looking at your uh, CV, you've ha- have quite a bit of experience uh, and some that I've known about uh, in the past, but not all of it. But one area that I wanted to talk to you about is uh, your experience in Israel from 1987 to 1993. What were the positions you had and what did you learn? And how and why did you go to Israel? So,
1: you know, I come from a Jewish faith back, background. Mm-hmm. I have uh, grandparents who were very much engaged with the concept of Zionism and, and uh, Jewish people returning to the land of Israel. So there was a lot of uh, connection to that. And in my, my education, my Jewish education background, uh, Israel always was a, a focal point. And I recall very vividly in my upbringing. I was probably about 16 years old, and I was at my Hebrew school and there was a you know, one of these events going on, sort of assembly. and it was tradition at the end of the assembly that you would sing the national anthem uh, in Hebrew for Israel. And something sort of clicked in my brain at that moment where I felt this sort of profound connection of sense of belonging and being part of something, even with just sort of singing this anthem, which just cascaded to a lot of other events of, hmm. of uh, when I was um, 17 years old, spending a summer there. Uh, so that's back in. Oh, my gosh in 1980, where sort of part of the youth group type of thing. And, and time by time, everything sort of felt more and more like I belonged there, I connected. And growing up here in the United States as a minority faith, uh, dealing with personal anti-Semitism uh, when I went to school and in other different types of ways, that it created a sense of purpose uh, being there. So mm-hmm. after high school, actually, I spent a year studying in um, in uh, you know, what's called the Yeshiva, sort of like a seminary for uh, religious studies in the mm-hmm. Jewish faith. And there was one particular holiday that, that celebrated where it's, think about the military memorial day here we have in the United States, they have the same thing in Israel. But they have the Memorial Day for soldiers, and uh, then they have the exact next day. So back to back, you go into sort of like our 4th of July, where you celebrate the country. And I was standing at this memorial ceremony when I was 19 years old, where uh, I was at a grave sites and standing above this sort of empty grave area, looking down. And a whole bunch of people coming to be with their fallen loved ones, wailing and crying. And, and I was thinking to myself, you know, my all these people gave their lives so that so I could stand here and be there. How could I turn my back to this? So it really pushed me into this place of, of feeling purpose and belonging. And that sort of began my experiences in living in Israel and. Um, So, I initially, after finishing my undergraduate degree in the United States, so I had this profound experience, came to the United States in return, got a graduate degree, excuse me, an undergraduate degree from the University of Minnesota, psychology, uh, did a lot of work, uh, research work in psychiatric medicine, uh, sort of. So, I came to Israel. Did some work in addiction, um, where doing counseling addiction with heroin addicts, working with kids who came on different tour tour groups as sort of a support services to different programs. And eventually, uh, as part of truly, you know, I figured I would just live in Israel. Um, I ended up serving in the Israeli Army uh, in a combat unit, which was a recon combat engineer unit. For a few years, and then after leaving the Army, uh, did this work with heroin addicts, but felt that I wanted to do a lot more. (laughs) And honestly, uh, being in your early 20s, you're looking for action. And Hmm. uh, I decided to join the Israeli National Police Force, which is a little bit different than American police, where uh, you actually from the very beginning you get trained in a particular job. and there was one uh, very exciting unit that um, I wasn't really even sure I could get into, but I tested through and it, it's the uh, basically the counter anti-terrorism national unit, so similar to like a national, SWAT team like the FBI or something like that. Yeah, I was going to
0: say whether it's like, is it like the <clears throat> FBI? Yeah,
1: yeah. in some ways it is. In some ways it's different. You know, you have to think about Israel as, as a country about the size of New Jersey. Right. Uh, population a little under 9 million um, and a lot of complexity. And, you know, that can be a, its own conversation for for quite a long time. And so what happened is I, I worked in an operative unit, uh, then went to become a trainer within that unit and in turn training other units within the police force and even doing international training uh, because I had uh, foreign language skills, uh, speak English fluently. Um, I was able to to interact with a lot of interesting folks over over the years. And then I ended up starting graduate school in Israel, in psychology, but just because of the workload and things like that. Um, and actually, a very complex—you um, know—I had a period of time where five colleagues of mine were killed in the line of duty. Oh boy! Uh, it was just a really, really tough period. I didn't feel that we did the greatest job of supporting them and supporting each other uh, in the way that that I felt worked. And so I ended up taking a leave of absence from the Israeli police and came to the United States for graduate school in counseling psychology and sort of more of a little forensic. And that sort of started my my story here in the United States professionally.
0: Were Were you actually planning on going back?
1: Yeah, I was really planning on doing my graduate studies here, focusing on stuff. And I was on a leave of absence from the police department and planning to return to a law enforcement job there in Israel. And then I, I don't know if you've ever had some of these experiences. You meet certain people in your life. And uh, this happened to be a, a woman in, <laughs> in one of my courses in graduate school. And she said, well, I, I'd be interested... Mm-hmm and and being with you but i can't move to israel at that time her parents were not real healthy and it just was not an option so if i was interested in her i would sort of have to make a decision between israel and for her for now so and i chose her
2: and
0: she's from minnesota too so that's she is yeah. yeah um the question I wanted to ask you: How hard was it? I mean, as an American, that all of a sudden to get a job there—is that is it that hard? What do, you, what do you go through to do that?
1: Well, there, there's the language first of all. So um, the the common language spoken is Hebrew. Hebrew. So as a kid, I had education in that. Uh, Even when I went to college here at the University of Minnesota, I took coursework in Hebrew. Um, So I wouldn't say that I was going there without any foreign language skill as far as speaking Hebrew. But, you know, there's one thing that you learn in the classroom. And the other thing is, you know, how you do it on the street. So I, I think that is a big struggle. And it's a Middle Eastern culture. So American culture, especially... Minnesotan culture is very, very different. You know, we're a little bit more in some ways quieter or with withdrawn in a way that you have Mediterranean style of energy and in your face and you know argue like you think you're going to have a fight, but in reality, <laughs> it's just sharing their opinion yes. and then you go and have coffee together <laughs>
2: yeah, right. and
1: talk about the family. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's very nice because you always sort of know where, where people, people are at. Yeah. Uh, and not, so not so true in Minnesota, one, right? No, no. You know, it's a little bit more New York style when yes. you think about it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in your face. Here's your opinion. But in reality, people do care. Um, so it was a full, and especially when they became part of the army, and, and more so even the police is that fully enveloped in that world and that culture to the point that my English skills, language skills, softened as far as my ability. Yeah, Because um, your brain, so
0: your brain find, starts thinking a different way, really.
1: Well, and don't forget, when you're in law enforcement, you can't sort of think in your head, how do you say that in Hebrew? Because most of the things I learned were brand new, so I actually only knew them in Hebrew.
2: Ah.
1: And, and and so when you look at law enforcement action and training and high risk things, you you can't stutter your words or things like that. When you know, like I'm sort of demonstrating here, it, that just doesn't work. So, um, it, it's
0: it's still just amazing though that you're at you know probably in top secret high level positions and uh, you're not an Israeli citizen. You're...
1: Well, that's that's not true, Edward. What happens is is that uh, I'm a dual citizen.
0: Oh, I see. Okay.
1: So, so the you United get, States you... and Israel have have an agreement that you could have maintain both citizenship. So I didn't have to give up my American in order to have Israeli, and I I didn't have to, you know, do that figuring out. Now, some countries you would have to do that. Yep. Um, And I know that when I came here to the United States, I was looking at and talking to some people like in the FBI or to work with them. And then they would want me to, I would have to renounce my Israeli citizenship if I would join an organization like that. I see. So
0: So do you still have dual citizenship now?
1: I do. Yeah,
0: interesting. Wow. Something I never knew about you. I mean, I knew that there was that experience. So this is uh, fascinating. Thank you for... Mm-hmm. Explaining all that, very interesting. Um, another thing that uh, I always knew the name of your company, but uh, uh, how did you come up uh, the name of the company? Is, uh, how do you pronounce it again? It's uh, made- it's
1: it, it's Massa, so it's M-A-S-A. F-A-S-S-A, so Massa, Massa comes from a Hebrew word. You know, uh, you know. When I came, I finished my graduate school here. I knew I was going to stay, so I started my own business of doing counseling and therapy. So you have to sort of incorporate a business. And uh, so he's talking, he said, well, you got to figure out a name of your business. And so are you thinking just Jonathan Bunton associates or something like that? Right. And, and I, and a lot of colleagues I saw around who were doing similar type of work. That's sort of what they did. And then I said, well, that's boring. <laughs> you know, That's not yeah, very meaningful. And, and, and for me, I felt that it was important that the name of my organization represents sort of sort of the depth of what I'm about and what I'm thinking and what the journey is about. And so um, I thought about in a, a specific experiences I've had in my life that had a lot of intense power that allowed me to go beyond what I thought I could. And in the Israeli military, which I think is very similar to other military experiences, you have basic training. And as you get more and more trained, you get towards that end of that phase of your training in a military environment. And in Israel, the, a, as you get to the end of your basic training, you have an experience that's called the Masa Alunka, which uh, Masa, if we would directly translate it, means journey, Alunka is a, a stretcher. Like it, the stretcher, You know, you open it up, you put a wounded soldier on, you carry mm-hmm. them, to care. Um, and and so at the end of this training, you do a very long, um, basically anywhere from 100 to 120 kilometer march carrying a wounded soldier that sort of uh, mimics the nature of war, mimics the nature of caring for everybody, meaning you leave nobody behind uh, and you lead. So what happens is, it's. Been, physically exhausting you're not sure how you're going to get through it mentally a lot of your uh like drill sergeants are still into you still testing your capabilities as far as can can you really hack this um but psychologically it sort of messes with you spiritually uh collaboratively i'm sorry i'm sort of pausing here because i keep I'm trying to remember what the English words are for these experiences, yeah. but it, it, you, you come, you know people have gotten through this because many, many, literally thousands of other people through the history have gone through this, but you're, you know you need to do it, and when I came to the end of this experience, there's a lot of celebration, there, there's symbolism behind all of it, you're given a, a new colored beret of the unit and all kinds of stuff. And I said, you know what, for me, what I'm trying to facilitate in individuals and groups and organizations is this process of getting through really hard things at a lot of different levels and getting them to the other side. And the other side, which has growth, which has learning into it Mm -hmm. now there's there's a unique nuance within the hebrew language of the word itself too that i only sort of figure out later from a good friend of mine who said when you spell masa one way which is journey as as i've been explaining it yeah and then another way you spell it which looks different but sounds the same means burden so when, when I look at it, my work and what I'm trying to do is help people see the true journey, the growth, the development versus that physical burden where people get stuck, where they feel they're the victim. And and so it's not only a name of my company, it's a name of the philosophy I think that all of us should be working on is finding the Masa, finding the right definition that has journey and growth in it versus the ongoing burden that yeah. sometimes traumatic events can carry over for long periods of time. And and truly it's it's a, a deep concern of mine of how how we're going to navigate this whole wor- world of COVID and very directly for for the citizens of the Twin Cities around what happened here and let alone at a national level what all of this is going to mean. And I hope I hope that there is change and movement around around the the different divides that we have in our country, where there's truly the massage journey versus here we are again, and and people always uh, asking for real equality and change.
0: Yeah, when you when you are talking about this, I mean, I that's that's what you do. I mean, I've seen you do it in the times that uh, you've helped that. Uh, Uh, and we worked together at at Lifelink over uh, some situations, and I know individually you've worked with people that have had tough transports and and getting them, so it's wonderful to understand that name. I never knew it. Of course, I always thought it was Masa, too, so uh, now I know uh, it's Masa. Well,
1: and, and Edward, now that you say it that way, you sound super cool. (laughs)
0: Yeah, thanks. So uh, um, when we talked in preparation for the podcast, uh, you know, uh, I wanted to specifically talk about COVID-19 and how that uh, is uh, affecting people and the, the, you know, the stress that it causes. But you had said it checks all the boxes of, of, you know, post-traumatic stress systems. So what do you mean by that? What are the boxes?
1: So when we start looking at, uh, and I want to speak just a little bit about the whole field of what we call psychological first aid. Psychological first aid is a strategy that's similar to basic first aid, but basic first aid, when we look at it, CPR and those very, very sort of basic levels are are designed for people who have very minimal skill sets, but they're there for the the immediacy to help. Psychological first aid has a similar parallel to the psychological, the emotional, the mental well being. And so when I go out and I teach about psychological first aid, we talk about the severity of incidents, meaning certain types of incidents have a complexity to create more trauma to them. Mm-hmm. And so when I say check the boxes, we have certain things that happen. That make it more traumatic, and and so, for instance, uh, a tornado, sirens go off, and we can see the tornado. We can see the damage. We have a little bit of a warning about how it's going to look. In many ways, we've you know we've seen it in ways that have affected other people or directly, and so, when it comes to creating more complexity, it's a lot lower level. Then we look at pandemic. And so why does pandemic check all the boxes? Well, for us, it was it was really unexpected in the way that it's affecting us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It is truly unknown about what it actually is, because you can't see a virus, right? unless you have all the skill set, the equipment to be actually look at it, you know, under a microscope. So when I'm walking around town, I can't see (laughs) it, right? Unlike a tornado, I can see it, you know, hit us. Yes. Um, And it's, it's sort of global impact. So many people are affected on it. Okay, that's another box. It has a sense of complexity of the response that makes it very difficult. So it's the medical side. It's the communal experience, it's the political experience. So literally, you know, if I was showing you the PowerPoint in the slide deck for psychological first aid about what makes things more traumatic, each of these items get hit. Yes. And and that creates a recovery strategy that is not easy and unexpected in a lot of different ways. How long? going to be yes. dealing with this yeah we profoundly as human beings want the stressor to be over yeah. right let's get over this and so when you start talking waves so public health people who i do a lot of work with they know and understand pandemics come in waves just like you know it's corona so it it has that flu-like sort of system to it and and we we know is that this particular type of Corona is, is not going to go away. Right. But we don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what the winter in Minnesota is going to look like as it relates to, to this virus versus if I lived in California or Florida or, you know, there, there's so many unknowns that we really, that creates a great deal of stress.
0: Yeah. The, the, the whole duration thing is, you know, um, You know, and I talked to you before, it's like, as you said, you know, a tornado goes through, then you deal with the aftermath and pick up the pieces, but it's, at least it's over this. We don't know the duration, you know, and then people, oh, can -hmm. can we get a vaccine? Well, how long will that take? Well, we don't know. We're trying to go as fast as possible, but I, I think adding to the stress is that I think people are tired of the duration and, you know, what it's doing to the economy And so people want to open up, but I'm really scared having, you know, my background is public health administration is, is what's going to happen with all these people that have all gotten together now. And, you know, could we have another wave of, uh, things or, or more? And, you know, Minnesota right now is, you know, on the spot right now for having a lot more cases, you know, that it's hitting us. Um, uh, more right now than it did you know in in New York, you had also mentioned you know on uh you know different areas of the country, but you know you look at brazil well that's southern hemisphere i mean what it doesn't seem like summer or winter basically is making any difference with this virus
1: or at least we don't know yet um, so it it doesn't seem to and and when we Look at all these differences, and and you know where certain public health strategies are so politicized yes. that that people can't make sense. So it creates a you know like masks. If you wear a mask or not, it's a political stand. And even within different infectious you know disease, scholars are not agreeing on, on the mask. Even even though CDC yes. says one thing, you, I mean so the lack of and i just want to speak about this from a mental health perspective the lack of singular guidance and direction clarity
0: yeah
1: and clarity and where where we have our sense of individual freedom is being uh tested and the collective what does the collective need these are really complicated things where People and, and this where we drill down to some of the psychology of this. People want to feel a sense that they're controlling an element of their life that they can control. I can't control where that virus is because I have no idea what it looks like. It's unexpected. I don't know. But you know what? I can control the fact that I wear a mask or not, or I choose to do this or not. So little bits and pieces, people are going to take control. And you think that if we have a second wave, we're going to get the compliance about. About you know staying at home, not a chance, right? People can only do things for a certain amount of period, and not. The, I mean, the economics of all of this is really, really hard. Yeah, It's, it's really hard.
0: Yeah, because you want to start it, but I, I think it's going to profoundly change things. Even you know, once we have vaccine and we can, uh, we're on the other side of this. I think some of those changes are going to be profound you know is there going to be as much travel uh can we do more things um you know remotely um you know some businesses do we need to have everybody in these little cubicles um you know it's it's going to be very interesting to see what happens and you know what's going on with um you know churches synagogues uh that uh you know they're doing virtual stuff and they're doing pretty well with it um you know actually they're getting maybe more people coming uh to services so yeah well and
1: here's the cool part of this and this is where massa comes into play is that there are opportunities that are going to be important to discover on a personal level on uh, organization management, on a state, yes. there, there are truly opportunities. I mean, many people talk about the ability to use virtual technology in a way that they never be- believed they could do before. The way that uh, on a personal level people are interacting, they miss one part, but a lot of families are experiencing a heightened sense of connectivity because they don't have to run around anymore. They actually are having more quality time now. Don't forget, there's the flip side of that coin, that many people feel isolated around this. Yes, and certain industries are profoundly going to be impacted. Which you know, any type of large gathering, I look at entertainment industries and things like that. Sports, though, um, sports, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, and and restaurants. I mean, it's it's. Uh, mm-hmm. I think those are the big ones, but you're right. I've had, uh, you know, my father's, uh, 93 and lives in a, um, it's an independent living, assisted living, you know, nursing home type of facility. And they're basically on lockdown, but we've had a number of, you know, zoom meetings with family. I had one with, uh, some cousins, uh, last Sunday and, uh, it's, it's pretty fun to connect that way too. It's easier to get people together. So, mm-hmm. so. And Zoom, Zoom has changed. Or I didn't even had even heard of Zoom until all this came out. I think a lot of people hadn't. So but, and, and it seems like they're dealing with some of their security issues too.
1: Yeah, they're figuring it out just like we are. Yeah. I think that, um To me, it's a platform that yep. allows for opportunities that we just might not have happened. Listen, I, you know, I had a, an uncle of mine who died from COVID. And and he was in in long term care, Parkinson's, a lot of difficulties. But he got COVID, and mm. and we had what in the Jewish faith we call shiva, yep. which is that sense of uh, of sitting and and remembering and having basically a ceremony around this, and probably you know, close to a hundred people from all over the United States, where none of us could travel, and. And when you're intentional and you understand how to use the tool, it was a profoundly powerful experience for the wow. limitations. We we actually even had somebody from uh, Hong Kong on it. And wow. some, uh, some people from Israel were on it, um, dealing with all the time zone things. But uh, there's opportunities. And, and Edward, this this is a really important part of all of this, is that at the heart of this, we have to come from a perspective that we're looking for the potential opportunities of individual and collective growth within the experience, especially because there is a lot of stuff we can't manage, we can't control, but we can look for those opportunities on a lot of different levels. And you have to be deeply committed to that. You have to be intentional about it.
0: Yeah. Have you, Jonathan, have you seen anything like this in the past? Have you had to deal with something of this magnitude in the past? Or is this so unique?
1: Um, you know, I've been in the intersection of what's called disaster behavioral health and public health and healthcare. care. Uh, wow. Since about, well, over 20 years. All right. And. I've done a lot of responses to pandemic, you know, uh, all the different alphabet soup, of the different pandemics we've dealt with, uh, you know, uh, and so nothing has come to this magnitude in my experience where you get this universality of global. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we had a period of time where the whole world was basically sitting in their home. How, how how do you you know so to me that universality can have something that is like that um, so basically no I haven't seen this I mean I've been in areas where there's been war um, and it, it just doesn't have the same flavor again it goes back to this idea it checks so many boxes. Yes. Of what causes things to be traumatic, that uh, I haven't seen. So it pushes myself and people who have similar uh, training and background and experience to say, for me, is you know what am I grabbing from this to help teach people to help them get through this and and support this uh, in a way that they can help themselves.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, you know the last time this happens were in nineteen seventeen eighteen. You know where you had. Uh, something of this magnitude of a pandemic that was worldwide.
1: Well, and, and let's look at critical care. And when you think of people who are, are you know, rotor or fixed wing and doing that type of, of activity, in general, in the scheme of things, that work isn't profoundly different, uh, similar to ground crews. Yes, we're dealing with the PPE issue dealing with the COVID, dealing mm-hmm. with, with that experience that does create more stress. Um, and though I think for ground, it's a different experience versus air. And I find that the stressors are still there for us who work in the air. Um, I think in many ways, the stressors ripple out even more powerfully into our personal lives. Yes. You know, it's like I, I had a call this uh, earlier this afternoon with folks who are working at, you know, trauma one uh, sort of hospitals and, and other type level of hospitals and the complexity of what you're doing when when you're working ICU and COVID units and things like that uh, constantly where, I have to be honest, you know, you mentioned earlier Minnesota is is feeling it hard right now. Is, you know, staffing is a complex issue. Getting enough staff, managing that, managing in house surge, you know, the challenges are there. The challenges are really there.
0: Yeah. Well, and specifically you'd mentioned, you know, difference in ground and air. So, what type of short and long-term support is needed for both Ground EMS and then air medical
1: crews. Well, I think fundamentally organizations have to first have a, have a system in, of wellness and support in place, mm-hmm. right? So that can be utilized. And, you, and and that
0: do you find that some
1: uh,
0: don't, or what? What percentage do you see
1: that do? Well, you know, I, I I'm just going to speak anecdotally because I have not studied. You know, exactly what we have on a national basis uh, of what services. I I do know the range is significant, right? Um, You know, most air services these days are going to have an employee assistance program, depending how you're connected you know, if you're independent standing, you're connected to a hospital, you're connected to your nervous, the hospital, you know, what whatever it is that you tend to integrate within, within those systems. So you have your medical care that you can access different types of systems. Um, and what becomes really interesting is that you have employee assistance program, you know, the, the 800 number, 24-hour number, that type of thing. Uh, becomes really important to have as a standard. Now, what is becoming a bigger movement uh, in in many places is what we call peer support programs. Mm-hmm. So that's where you take peers who are uniquely selected and trained under uh, good clinical guidance from a mental health professional, and they get trained up and they provide peer support, which is... Having people on call, being able to reach out, communicate, uh, following up with more difficult types of flights uh, or just calls in general. So you have to have a system in place that can be responsive. And then another big piece is having supervisors, along with everybody, having a basic understanding of stress, stress management, self-care, Having these things in place is, is important from a training perspective that supervisors know the indicators, that there's protocols in place where there might be areas of concern, where people have the freedom to say, I'm not doing well, I need help and nobody will judge them. And one of the things I know when you and I were working together from a safety perspective, That's critically important, right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't want somebody going on a flight who's just not feeling that great and not top of the game because they're worried about a kid of theirs who is waiting to get results to see if they have cancer or not. Yep, and I can't separate that because I'm the parent. So, a lot of times, I think that we have to have an organization that. Is similar to just cause is just in the sense of of how we treat our people and then um i think it is important to have the balance of mental health professionals who understand the work and i've seen this in many different types of industries that have high stress and complexity where you get a mental health professional who wants to help but they're they're too curious and too almost excited about the work itself, and don't think about the person in front of them. Hmm. Um, does that does it, that make sense? What I'm yeah, saying,
0: yeah, I think. But we, like, what would be an example of that?
1: Um, so, I
0: mean, excited about me. excited that oh, I get to go on a helicopter or you know what, right, what they're doing. right.
1: So, So, hey, what's it like to be in a helicopter flying around, Yeah, you know, and and landing? And, oh, you know, what kind of equipment do you guys use versus listening to the story of the person about what their needs are? And and the slogan I use, meet them where they're at, not where you would want them to be or need them to be or almost infatuated about what they do. Uh, I mean... You know, it's uh, another example, not from our industry we're talking about, but another industry I work with is the corrections industry or the law enforcement industry. Oh, what is it like to work in a jail? Because I don't understand that. Yeah. So you spend half the time educating a person about what your work is like and then, OK, well, we got five minutes up. So <laughs> what were you here for? Yeah. Um, and and there, there's. There's no joining there. There, There's no sensibility being able to think that this person's putting me, you know, really first.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more. Um, You know, you had mentioned you do work with hospitals, too, and you were talking about uh, in the ICU. And, you know, you see that in so many reports of, uh, you know, people being interviewed on TV that, you know, it's just they're understaffed, overloaded, don't have the uh, right personal protective equipment where they know they're dealing with COVID patients. And then you have EMS and air medical that you might not know that who you're dealing with and, and it gets, you know, down to universal precautions. Is, is that a stress too, you know,
1: the, the the known
0: versus unknown? I, I, I mean, at least you.
1: Well, it, it's part of the known versus unknown, but I think the stress comes, you know, in two different ways. If you don't have the protocols in place and, and really feel confident in the protocol and the PPE that you have in the sense, mm-hmm. you know, of how you manage it, because there's a certain level of creativity that you have to sort of think through around how to manage and deal with with patients, especially if you're... Uh, if we look at ground crews who really can walk into things where you really don't know because oftentimes our air crews uh, in the vast majority of times are receiving a a patient from a ground crew or from a hospital Hospital, who has a sense of what, what you're getting. Yep. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Right. But there's a little bit of a, a difference where, where, um, a lot of, and I'm just speaking here in Minnesota, a lot of folks are, you know, EMS is receiving a call on on a COVID patient. And so it gets categorized and dispatched under certain things. And the vast majority of time, you know, there, there really probably isn't a, a COVID or a pandemic patient. And they've come to learn sort of what it is and what it's about. Um, and they have set, you know, they, meaning ground crew, set up certain ways that, that to uh, minimize the exposure risk by maybe initial engagement only with one clinician
2: mm-hmm.
1: to sort of see what's going. So they're doing some some changing uh, on the ground that's a little bit different. Now, in the air, like I said, I, I, I think the stressors are uh, different in, in some ways.
0: Yeah. We, um, it's the whole... Uh, notion of cumulative stress, you know, and <laughs> that uh, EMS workers uh, deal with cumulative stress just given the nature of their work, you know, the types of uh, situations they get into, especially I know uh, when you've worked with uh, the Lifelink staff with, you know, dealing with a pediatric patient or something that, you know, you relate to. Um, how does COVID-19 add to this given that that they are seeing... You know, more patients die, especially in the hospital, uh, and the possible death of coworkers, and really trying to remain safe at work and making sure that they're not bringing something back to their families.
1: So there are a lot of different pieces to, to your question, Edward. Um,
0: I always like you multi part questions there. Well, <laughs> I <I'm>, just get <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I know, I know, I appreciate it, but that doesn't mean I'm going to remember every part of what your <laughs> question is. So uh, I want to start with cumulative stress issues yes. because I think, not because it's the first thing you said, but I think it's probably one of the most misunderstood and critically important that we in our field understand. A lot of energy is is put into what I call the critical incident that singular event that really creates a lot of emotion. Um, You know, uh, obviously within air medical, I I, I think about the crash, uh, you know, of a ship um, where there's death of one of our own, um, where we're dealing with a peds patient who was uh, abused by an adult. And, you know, we're dealing with a, a critical situation with life and death with this particular peed, and and where it just stirs up so much, we're responding to our own uh, or somebody we know. So those are our more traditional critical incidents. I think the higher risk, and I'm not minimizing those events. The higher risk is the the cumulative event. So it's the stuff that just keeps poking at ya. And what that can be is um, it could be long hours. It could be the outside of work events that are going on in my personal life, the financial, the relationship, the medical issues in my own life. It could be the stress amongst colleagues or leaders in an organization. It could be um, the types of medical work, lack of equipment that constantly is a frustration. Cumulative stress is basically the core concept that my stress never really comes down enough to allow me to breathe, to allow me to relax. And so what happens is, and this leads up to the next parts of your question is, if I don't sort of release some of that cumulative stress, it's going to build, and it's going to build physiologically in my body of chronic stress. So that's backaches, headaches, sleep issues, uh, diet issues, and, and even some of you know your blood chemistry pushing people into pre-diabetic areas, uh, depending on on sort of what's going on in our body mm. and and IBS types of stuff, gastro. So. Some of these things, when we look at it, they they build in different ways because we don't vent that energy. So in turn, when you start putting this over to the world of COVID, all right, I'm at work, I'm at work, I got a lot of stress, then I come home and COVID impacts my life at home too. If I got kids, it's the education elements that are challenging. If, you know, uh, my spouse has lost their job, right? My my uh, yep. friends are pushing me to be able to do things that I'm really not comfortable with because that exposes me. Or, as you were saying, flip side of this is I'm worried about exposing people in my household. Yes. And we do have, you know, we do have people who, and this is a lot in the hospitals, but may not be going home. Yep. Right, they, Just, or they do the doffing of everything. They have their whole rituals in the garage and garbage bags, and then they feel they need come in home. So you never get away, which tends to drive cumulative stress to increase.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and the big factor is: do you have strategies to release that?
0: So, so what are the strategies then?
1: What can you do? So, here's the thing that becomes critically important is that people stop and they recognize that the stress is happening. So, the number one strategy is welcoming and and agreeing within yourself Hmm. that this stuff affects me. This stuff puts stress on me. I may not know what to do about it. I may have others suggest what to do about it, but not saying that this doesn't affect me or it doesn't affect other people, right? So the recognition becomes the first phase of doing something about it. Second step is what is it for me that's going to be helpful? One of the things that I have found, at least for me personally, that I have sort of signed unique to me managing my stress of COVID is I'm doing more outdoors mm-hmm. and and uh, specifically, I'm doing something that I'm really enjoying is sort of weeding. I go around my house and, and it's sort of, <laughs> I, I can say, I get this done. I can see the impact. Yes, yeah. I'm outside. I'm oftentimes listening. <laughs> uh, I'm listening to a podcast. I'm listening to music. Um, uh, one of my dogs sort of follows me around, and she sits while I'm working in an area. And what's interesting is I, I get it all done, and um, five to seven days later, there's more work to be done. I go and do it again. So, so it allows me to keep using that as a tool. So we all have to find the thing. And I know Edward, you're you're a, you're. A, um, I'm trying to think of the adverb of how you think about biking. Yep. But, you know, biking, to me, what I've heard from you, you know, it's like that for, for me. Some people like to cook. Some people play music. Some people, uh, you know, have made their own TikTok videos and, and have been creative in a lot of different types of ways. The key is, is finding things that are healthy. I know people who have learned how to do different things they never learned because they got time. They're having the family dinner that they make together. They're uh, one of the things, it's not every night, but what we do in my family is we have the outdoor bonfire at night where we kick back, wife and I, or a couple friends who socially distance, or my kids, and and we sit back with a fire. And enjoy that in different types of ways. So you know you got to recognize, you got to identify what are those things you that fit for you. And the third part of this this sort of triple play here is you got to do it. Yes. Right. You can't put it off. And that's where you each of those steps is is important. And you can't say, okay, this is going on. So I'm going to just do this. You have to be more intentional and meaningful. So when I go out and do that weeding, I am saying I'm doing this to be a stress relief. And we have found, and this is in the work of resilience, when you are intentional with your actions, they create more meaning and thus more effective in the intent. It's just like, I, I you know, I don't know any of your your folks who listen to your podcasts are involved in yoga. Yes. I actually was very involved in in hot yoga because it gets my my body moving in a way that that is helpful, but you know what? I can't do hot yoga anymore. <laughs> and and I haven't been able to do it since this all started. I've also had challenges because I've had orthopedic operations that made it more difficult and i'll be honest it's probably not a place that i see coming back online anytime soon no probably not a good place for uh right virus stuff. so yeah. so you have to be uh flexible and adaptable <laughs> it sounds like yoga but <laughs> to be able to to shift to other things instead of saying you know what uh i, I don't know i'm just gonna be upset angry or i'm just not going to do anything or what's really dangerous you know i'm just going to sit and drink a lot and not feel now this isn't i'm not talking about drinking as a negative thing i'm thinking drinking to change your feeling your mood
2: yeah
1: i want to feel better so i drink versus i feel great i'm i enjoy being around these people or this situation so i have a drink and I used to be very involved in addiction counseling directly, and I'm very careful with my words on that. Uh, and so, it's it's important to look and understand that.
0: Yeah, I, I really like what you're saying because I think the the recognition thing is something I, I know some people have problems with, and and helping people recognize how do you when you're working with someone or um, let's say that you're in management uh and uh you notice that someone how do you get them to recognize that to to take those actions without being judgmental
1: so you know one of the big things that i think is important to train our manager and leaders and and supervisors too is how to have the conversation with people who you're concerned about and worried about hmm to, to be more engaged with, with self-care. Now, clearly you can't make people do these things, right? You, You can't say, you know, um, you really need to find something because you're clearly stressed out, right? You have to have a sense of dialogue that that's based on your relationship with with individuals in the first place yeah. so there has to be a sense of confidence and trust and re- mutual respect for each other meaning we both are listening to each other we both try to uh, to work together and as a leader speaking to you know um, somebody who reports to you and you have a concern it becomes important to uh, feel if that is not something that i'm good at and, and and particularly if I have a concern for a person who I'm worried that they could have a mental health risk going on, yes. meaning they have anxiety issues, they have depression issues, and or they have suicide issues, right? And and this happens, and this is, you know, I don't want to call this the, the white elephant in the room here, but it is a real, real big problem that we have in EMS is self-harm is suicide hmm. is addictive behaviors yes you know so part of this is uh getting a little bit up on a p- pedestal here but having the confidence to have honest conversations when we're worried is based on the honesty and respect that you create in that relationship at, at its core right so that that means that if i have a concern that I, I come from it, I create an answer, that means it's confidential, it's private, it's intentional in the time that you take, that I, I'm i worried because I'm seeing this action and this behavior. I'm, I'm seeing this. I'm not saying it's there. So it doesn't come across as I am actually judging a person. I'm telling you that, you know, you are bad or you are less than and so what happens is is that conversation becomes an important skill set and in reality that is an important training thing that goes beyond the scope of our conversation right right now but it's important to identify that these conversations that and, and think about those three steps again you know uh i'm noticing impact in these certain ways, and being very behaviorally descriptive. I am seeing this. Help me understand if if what I'm seeing is accurate. Help me understand that you're a lot more quieter than you've been in the past. You seem more on edge. Um, I'm getting this information, and I just want to make sure I understand that. And then it may be partnering with them in that second stage. What have you been doing to take care of yourself? How can I help you? Direct to resources. Have you maybe thought about using the EAP? Mm-hmm. How about you know? Let's let's make an in in house sort of fitness challenge amongst all of us, and then be accountable. Doesn't mean you have to get into the privacy of that person who reports to you. But I also know when I look at at base operations and crews people get really close to each other you know you spend a lot of time together and and it's just especially our clinical crews um they're they're really close they're family so
0: yeah it's and i think that gets into what you were talking with peer support too because with peers you're you're if you and i are providing peer support we recognize you know where I'm showing up in a usual way, and then where I, you know, come to work and something's bothering me, and you can recognize it, mm-hmm. right? the The other thing, I, I guess, what is the difference? You, you talk about cumulative stress. What's the difference? Uh, I don't have the word for it, and I'm probably sure there is one. Is that triggers something? Um, and and I'll use my own example and you actually helped me through this you know we had a did a drill and uh for some reason the hospital didn't want to have it announced and you know it came across and all of a sudden you know it was simulating that helicopter crashes on the roof of a helipad well you know I I lived through in 2000 a crash of a helicopter when i was at uh, duke university hospital and wow did it trigger Uh, things with me what's what's the difference between that and cumulative i i I was thinking that maybe they're related
1: um somewhat they they are they are a little bit different and i'm not i'm not here to diagnose you or anybody (laughs) else edward right so when we have singular events that have deep impact yeah they can start off with what we call uh, more of an acute stress. The acute stress says, um, you know, I got a common and expected response. I have a little bit of hypervigilance. I'm a lot more self aware of my environment. It, it can trigger me. Um, and typically that ranges from three to four weeks period of time. We can go th- through that and over time it decreases. Yes. Now, what it can involve to is more of a, a PTSD-like event. So the, the PTSD is the singular event that in turn, uh, no matter what period of time you look, you look at veterans of war or people who have had different type of very powerful singular events, and then in turn what happens is certain things can trigger the reoccurrence of the thought around that event, cumulative stress gets triggered and the emotional energy is not easily identified to one single thing because it's all sort of compacted and confusing about where it's all coming from, right? So in order to, to, to get at cumulative stress, there has to be a little bit more work to identify what it is that you're worried and concerned about. And it's not all often clear. It takes some time. The, the more thing that you're talking about is, is, and this is literally in the brain, is you have an event, uh, a simulated training exercise, like all of us have to do it, you know every year or every two years, depending on what it is. And you have this crash simulation and it's similar feeling to our real world you had. There's no question that you're going to remember it. Because uh, how yep. can you not? Right now, what's different is you have distance from it. You can say, "Hey, I am feeling this way because of what happened in the real world." Now, now, on a side note, Edward, um, and I think you know my opinion on this. I am not a fan of the unannounced, complex sort of exercise. Right. I think that's. um well, was well, the and, root problem? You know, yeah. Well, you don't have the time to sort of prepare and think through it. And, and even from a training point of view, some of the lessons aren't learned in the same. Yep. Now, having, a, having all of a sudden a, a regular type of thing you do from a clinical point of view, and then all of a sudden, you know, somebody says, All right, let's do innovations right now, or let's do a quick activation for a lift. You yes. haven't done that in a while. And nobody announced it. Well, that's not a big deal. A crash, we've never had real world. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, it's because you, know, uh, yeah, you want to practice, practice, practice. You know, it, and right. and there, you know, you want to drill, drill, drill. But I think people need to know that it is so that when it does happen, you've got that stuff ingrained. So, anyhow, I right. just wanted to. Um, one of the other things that is going on right now is that you know, COVID-19 has really caused a lot of financial stress, and not just with, Mm. you know, different businesses, but really healthcare providers, too. I mean, we're seeing that with COVID, many providers are, you know, being overwhelmed with treating patients. Uh, They're not able to do other types of procedures, uh, and patients might be afraid of even going to a hospital, uh, thinking that they're going to, get COVID if they go there, but they, they really should be going to the hospital. And, Mm -hmm. you know, let's face it with our system, people have lost health insurance because they're out of work. Um, So what's, how does, how does the financial stress play into this overall stress
1: that we're feeling? Well, I mean, I mean, you want to think about it in this way in. I assume that, that you and the listeners are familiar with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And so when we look at that foundational element of basic needs and basic survival elements being met, you know, in our day, in our world, you have to have finances to be able to get through that. So we correlate that basic need of finance as being a, a deep, deep struggle. And so what happens, you know, and I was just... Uh, I don't know if you look at uh, EMS one newsletter on a regular basis that comes across, you know, uh, they do wonderful work. And and one of the top stories in today's sort of piece that came out, you know, is we got an EMT who survives COVID, but then loses his home to flooding. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, this does happen, unfortunately, a great deal. That one traumatic thing you get over, and then you get slapped with another one. Just like here in the Twin Cities, you get hit with COVID, and now we have uh, uh, protesting and rioting yes and looting. Yes. Right? So it, it's when we look at the financial part, is it becomes really tough. And I'm no financial advisor. I mean, that's not the wheelhouse. <laughs> I, I have to have other people do that for me. Um, but one of the things we know it's a sense of, of preparedness that you're supposed to have, as it relates to your finances, and that's not always easy. It's no. not always realistic for people to have. And um,
0: yeah, because you if, know, you know, say you're supposed to have, you know, how many months and stuff. But you know, again, you're back into that duration unknown. Well, how long is this going to last? Um, and and you know, we're, you know, we're seeing healthcare staff. I think for the first time in a long time, getting laid off, you know, because the hospitals can't do it. I think Mayo lost, what was it in the news? They lost $3 billion in revenue um, and were laying off workers. Um, so, you know, that's causing a, a lot of stress. In, in the air medical world specifically, I know that there's, um, you know, people not being able to... Um, uh, you know the, the transport volume is down. I haven't seen the, any big cuts, but uh, at least from what I've read, but um, you know, uh, volume is very important uh, for you know to keep the financials going.
1: Well, you know, that goes back to some of my, our opening discussion around it's just unexpected. Yes. And here's the tricky part I, I just get off a call with staffing issues and the stress that's creating at different places where we got people on the bench who furloughed uh, and obviously sometimes it's different healthcare systems um, where, well, let's get people work, you know, and, and not to mention, you know, I look at, I have uh, young adult kids and they had all these specific things going on for the summer for work. And all of that has gone away because that experience isn't available for them anymore. Uh, and you know, that's going on everywhere. Right. And what are, what are they going to do? How are they going to find work? Um, and it's not necessarily that, that easy. Yeah. There are places hiring. Um, but everybody is, is, in these places. So, you know, what, what do you do around this? is really looking at turning for support from from other family members and looking at at what do i need to do now we have at the at the government levels local state and federal levels uh, you know providing some type of help but I, you know i'm not sure how well that's going to work from a long-term perspective yeah
0: another question i had is you know that what we're seeing uh, uh, and we sort of touched upon this: is you know the the protests that you know you know you can't infringe on my freedom. We, we need to open back up, and then you see protesters, but then you see healthcare workers out there trying to counter protest. No, don't. We can't open up. We can't be overwhelmed. Um, you know, so they're dealing. Uh, healthcare providers are dealing with these protests, um, and that's putting even more pressure. You know, how do you cope? with this, given everything else?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of core concepts when you look at these activities. Um, I think you have to minimize your engagement with media to a level that um, doesn't stress you. So for some people, that's a total disconnect to the media for some people that is i do it in measured amounts to sources of media that i'm comfortable with so again it goes back to being intentional about how i absorb that that information because a lot of that activity is getting piped through media resources yeah. so how do you manage that now when it comes to the elements that that relate to the whole divide between the two i I struggle, and this is me, Jonathan, I struggle with individuals whose sense of personal freedoms and needs supersedes the needs of the greater good. Yes, And, and unfortunately, I think there's an element of lack of understanding of the public health, health care implication of certain people's actions. Where people feel that I am controlling their world, and you can't do that, you know, our country is based on on freedom, um, and so if you want to choose to have speech and speak out, okay, but please, please listen to what's going on, or, or the people who say, well, this is just like influenza, right? You know, um, and not. Allowing, you know, and and this where the where the universal messaging is just, I think, lacking, honestly, to help understand um, really the medicine behind all of this. So part of that is also saying people have different needs. And you know what? If you get sick and you come to to my pre-hospital or hospital care, we're going to treat you all the same. But we're, we're asking you just to try to do it different because it may make a difference be between me or my colleagues make a decision around certain people who get offended or not. I mean, you could be, you can be dramatic like that. Because yeah, it's
0: not just the individual's freedom. You're infringing on, you know, because you refuse to wear a mask, you're infringing on other people's freedom because the mask is really to protect others of, of you, not the other way
1: around. And, um, well, especially if we really don't, we know we, the, the period of time that you're asymptomatic is not like the flu. It's a lot longer. Yes. So, and, and so you really don't know. Um, well, you know, it really makes it, it's hard for me to breathe. It's hard for this. It's hard for that. Um, so
0: I, I bicycle with a mask. I, I found a, uh, sort of a it's it's masks that actually are made more for you know bicycling in pollution or smoky areas, but it's got you know the carbon filters and stuff, and it works pretty well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's not bad. I mean, I don't wear it the whole time, but especially if I'm around people, I I do. One mm-hmm. of the things that uh when we were talking about doing this podcast is the whole notion of making healthcare providers heroes. And you said this is causing extra stress. Explain that.
1: What's right? Well, I, I want to say it's not universal. So let's let's set this up a little okay. bit. Is you know, um, in in my work, I facilitate uh, a work group of what we call disaster behavioral health staff staff wellness in the metropolitan area hospitals here in Minnesota. And this is a group of people who come together from different facilities just to collaborate about, hey, what are you seeing on the ground? What type of help can we help each other out with providing resources and thoughts and ideas and actually just individual support? So one of the things that came up in our discussion is that some staff feel uncomfortable with the term being called a hero. Hmm. You you know, and, and usually the follow up with this is, you know, I don't feel like a hero. I'm doing my job right this this is sort of what i do heroes are for other people and and then you have the flip side of that for other healthcare professionals which gives them the sense that people are recognizing what we're doing they appreciate that they respect that you know the different traditions that have happened in the new york community relating to recognizing healthcare workers and all the work that they're doing mm-hmm. so I think when we look at it, we have to understand that both sides of this being identified as a hero is is an important thing to, first of all, say, hey, I get it. Right. I'm doing my job. I just want to be able to to focus. Uh, And at sometimes I don't feel heroic because uh, there's death around me. There's right. risk, um, all different types of things, and so one thing that I think it's important to to recognize as it relates to the public identifying this is the the overall public just doesn't have a way to clearly say I really thank you for what you're trying to do. Yeah, and people will find different types of ways, you know sending a whole bunch of Jimmy John sandwiches to a hospital just say, I want to thank you and and give your staff sandwiches. Right. So that's a way of thanking or, you know, at seven o'clock banging, banging pans or having, uh, the fire trucks or whatever, go by the hospital and, you know, the flyovers,
0: the flyovers, the flyovers. Right.
1: So everybody needing that sense of saying thank you, uh, and this happens to be one particular way. So when we were talking and looking at this within our work group, we we, I felt it was important to say, you know, recognize that there is not an easy way for people to say I really respect and thank you for what you're doing. So using the vernacular hero in the law enforcement community, first responders, fire and EMS. I think it's the same thing. You know, there's a certain sense of being uncomfortable with being heightened, different in a way that you're a hero. Uh, And it just depends on your personality too. Some people um, really feel uncomfortable with it, genuinely feel uncomfortable with it. You look at the military community, you know, there is a tradition of identifying people and giving them awards of valor. Right. So, it's a very, uh, I think, tricky topic that we have to open ourselves up of understanding what is the need of the public to use that vernacular because we're not calling ourselves heroes. We're not looking and, and saying you're a hero to me. At least it's not my experience. Yeah. I respect you for the work you do, the leadership you do. But I don't think, and you correct me from your experience, Edward, I, you know, I don't see internally using hero as a term it's it's what's coming from the general public coming into us and so if that's happening i always call it in 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 the work that i think about put yourself in those people's shoes and try to understand what it's about and correct it if you if it's really coming from a place that you can't support
0: yeah i I think what you're talking about is like gratitude i I remember yeah i think the things that uh you know for me, it's like seeing letters come in that talk about uh how well you know and thank you for how you treated my you know son daughter husband wife um you know those those types of letters are And you know, when we'd get those, we'd make sure we'd get those out uh, uh to everybody what what do you is is there from your work with e m s and air medical is there do you think there's a better way to show gratitude or what, maybe not a better way, but what people would most appreciate on the receiving end?
1: I don't know. I think, I think we, we in this field like food. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yes, you definitely. Right. So, yep. you know, um, that's always nice. I, I was over at a fire station uh, earlier in the week and, and the folks who were working that shift, and I sometimes make rounds and stop in uh, and just say, hey, guys, how you doing? What's up? They, they had uh, uh, some organization just felt, hey, they brought them Chick-fil-A for lunch. And then ironically, they brought, you know, Devonnie's, which is a local sort of hoagie place. And, and they were really satisfied. And they were still going to have dinner somewhere else. Yeah. Right. So so I, I think that there's a way of recognition and I and I do like, you know, what you're saying, Edward, about the word gratitude, to express gratitude. I think you're right, it is a saying hero is a form of gratitude. But in EMS um there's a sense of gratitude that is expressed. And, and you know, this is not an uncommon amongst lots of cultures and tradition it's food. You know, there are uh, different things that go on, but just having a sense of a presence of just saying thank you, I appreciate your commitment. Um, And don't forget, you know, all of us who are responding to all these patients when everybody's supposed to stay at home, you know, we're going out there. and, And yes, people are putting themselves at risk in a different way because of how it affects their personal life too. Because yep. of this unseen, unknown virus that can be brought home. And, and you 100% don't know if you have it or not. I mean, you and I don't know. We're sitting here. We have no idea in, in 7, 10 days that we become slowly symptomatic. Right? I don't yeah. know.
0: Yes. So I've got uh, one more question then on just a couple of personal things. but What is post-traumatic growth? And what should individuals and companies be looking at to create uh, positive growth? You know, from any experience, but you know, especially this one that's ongoing right now.
1: So so let me let me first start with with a general definition of post traumatic growth. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now it's it's important to understand that it's basically refers to. The sense of positive personality uh, development, growth after some high-stress traumatic life event. You know, um, you, you experience something traumatic, and in a sense, it transforms you in who you are, how you address things from a personal, individual level. So, in a sense, the traumatic event facilitates your ability to grow in some particular way. Um, It is a newer concept within, within the mental health field to think about and talk about. And I think it's part of a positive psychology movement idea that is really less clinical and medical that looks for disorder, but it's looking for development and you can look at it from, uh, you know, uh, traumatic things that might happen to a child and how to move them along. So first and foremost, it's really, uh, for me, in my clinical opinion and how I look at my work, a very important concept. Mm-hmm. And it falls in line with what I talk about as massage journey, that you find this traumatic thing. Now, where it becomes complicated, has to do with the element of post-traumatic growth. As a traumatic thing has happened, now we learn and grow from it. Well, there is sort of a little bit of a, an endpoint to that traumatic experience to allow the growth to evolve. Well, Edward, where's the endpoint with COVID? Yes. Right now, it is quite clear that all of us feel that we're in a different place now than we did you know, uh, over two months ago in as far as Minnesotans in the beginning of March. So I, I think that in some ways post-traumatic growth is, is the term a uh, post is we haven't hit the post yet. We haven't hit the yeah. end yet, right. but there are still things that, that we can allow ourselves to grow in and, and develop and that relates to some of the things we've talked earlier in our conversation about finding those things that are good with self-care, allowing to learn about who you are and what you're about through this type of event, what type of person, uh, how do I want to, to develop? You know, there's a slowdown thing for me that has been positive, that just the nature of how a lot of things in certain parts of my work have gone like crazy busy, and other parts have really slowed down a lot and it's, it's very different in that manner and trying to understand that.
0: Mm -hmm. It's, it's almost, uh, adapting, uh, traumatic adapting to, because, you know, we don't see an end. And that was actually going to segues right into, I I was going to ask you, you know, how has the whole COVID-19 changed the way you're doing work? Um, and you've partially answered that already.
1: Um, but. I, I mean, one of the things that it's changed my work, it's connected to a couple of different things we've talked about, but it's this is the event that I have not experienced. And, and you know, I'm always careful to say in my work when especially dealing with trauma, you know, I've seen things similar to this. Well, you can never truly say that because all of us have individual experiences and the ways of reacting according to our own personal histories and things like that that become important to identify and work with. Now, the element of this is for me in my field and my profession, like many of us who think about wellness and cares, how can I translate that to be helpful to people in unique ways that have unique messages? that people can grab onto and latch onto and be useful to them instead of useless. And and I think that this is challenging me in that way where my air quotes here, post-traumatic growth, the growth part is figuring out the different types of strategies along a platform that has to allow with certain elements of social distancing so much of my work is is being in front of varying degrees of people up to hundreds in conferences and right. and all types of settings and how are we going to do that until we have herd immunity uh, vaccines and all that kind of stuff where oh, I mean a lot of the experts say is that you know we're going to have to be vaccinated and they're not hundred percent sure if it's a one gonna end up being one time vaccination or, or sort of like seasonal flu.
2: that yeah. they're
1: gonna have to add this into the cocktail uh in order to manage it.
0: Yes. So yeah it's an ongoing process. Well well my uh final thing is that uh you're gonna be speaking at the uh, Air Medical Transport Conference uh in November and hopefully that'll be in person, but if not I, I think they're maybe trying to do something virtual. It's, uh, your topic is uh, building organizational strength from within, operationalizing comprehensive support systems and utilizing mental health professionals. I don't want you to give away your presentation, and especially since I'm a board member of Ames, but uh, what, are, <laughs> what areas will you be covering? What, what Can you give us a, a teaser?
1: Well. One of the things that I think, and it sort of was an element in in an earlier conversation of ours, uh, is that I don't always believe that our different organizations understand how to leverage the mental health professional and the mental health systems Mm -hmm. to be fully integrated into our organization for the most efficiency. For, and the health of the people in that organization. So what should that look like? How should that work? Who should it be is really what I, what I think about and what I want to talk about at AMTC. Now, one of the interesting things is many times presentations sort of hang their hat on the idea of the critical incident debriefing model, right? Uh, which to me is only a small part, of a whole bigger strategic model of wellness and support, Mm -hmm. or they just talk about, uh, what, you know, stress is on the job. To me, it's truly the leverage of those professionals. So systematically through different phases, different ways, and different types of engagement in, in a model that we use, um, at Lifelink. So, you know, a lot of this is how this is happening there uh, in turn, but also how I use it in, in other places. So mm-hmm. I don't think I gave away too much of my no, presentation, yeah. but I gave enough to, so people hopefully will, will attend. And, and to me, you know, what is difficult about this from an educational perspective is, you know, we were talking about Zoom. Zoom is a powerful tool of engagement and connecting people. But what I find is that conversation, and I'll just use an example because you know I do this. I come come to the administrative sort of building of Lifeline, and I have a meeting or two with people. But then I walk around to schmooze and I connect with people. Yes, right. You you can't really do that in the same way. No, you you know. So we have a you know you got a like the side
0: conversations and yeah. Yes. but a
1: lot happens in those yes and absolutely if you're at a conference at a conference how you do all those side conversations are they are filled with professional engagement and networking and and just fun uh, and just uh, that sense of some of the most powerful conversations i ever have at conference are not necessarily in a presentation listening or interacting it's the in-between.
0: Yeah, It's an, or even the questions afterward. You're, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. Well, I, I know uh, we'll be looking forward to that, and I know I will. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time. I've really enjoyed uh, having the chance to talk to you and learning more about you and, and the work that you do. Oh. So thank, thank you very much.
1: You know, can I say it? It's fun. I mean, it's fun to talk about these topics for me, my hope, that, that some of these ideas get out there through the people who who listen here. And, you know, anybody out there who's listening, I think that it's taking some of these ideas to heart and really trying to be practitioners of it for yourself, for your family, uh, for your partners out there in the field, for the people who report to you. Uh, being really part of that is is deeply important to me and should be part of all of this. We need collectively to be together in these types of times and be supportive and accepting of wherever we're at, and to always, always have the courage to reach out for help because it takes more courage and more strength uh, to reach out than to sit silent.
0: Yep. Well, thanks again, and thank you for your the great work that you're doing. So thanks for listening to this episode of the air medical today podcast please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on itunes air medical today is also on facebook twitter and linkedin and you can find the links on the website Remember, if you would like to be a sponsor or provide feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. A special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com stanley.reeves.39. Take care and fly safe.